Alrighty, hello again, everyone. Welcome to it. It is the Derek Hunter Podcast, the 27th of July, 2022. Happy Wednesday. I had to look that up. How sad is that? I am Derek Hunter. I am your host. Appreciate you listening, downloading, sharing, telling a friend everything you guys do to make this show successful. Because it is. It's really, this is your song, except this is your pod. I should not sing. I can't stop it, but I should not sing. Anyway, I do genuinely appreciate everything that's going on and all that you guys do. Don't forget about patreon.com slash Derek Hunter podcast, the week in F and review, the contest this week. It's Mark Levin versus Kurt Schlichter. Which autograph book do you want? Also, DerekHunter.locals.com. Both work. There's a lot going on in the world. We'll get to as much of it as humanly possible. You know, only one human being can only do so much. You know what I'm saying? It's uh, some things to celebrate, too, including one of the worst TV shows, <laughs> the worst people. Going away. Going away. Finally, after seven years, a TV network said, you know what? We should probably try to attract an audience. That's a novel approach to television making i understand but uh yeah tbs congratulations on waking up and recognizing that you're a business not just a left-wing political action committee anyway yes uh just quick updates i get every time i mention sick kids on the show i get a bunch of messages and i appreciate it and i'll give you an update that they are uh, doing better bailey's continuing to improve bailey's pretty much over it except for just sounds it's like a deeper maybe she's just getting a deeper voice but it sounds like she's a little stuffed up but that's been that way all week and she's not uh, not impacted by it quinn lost her fever which is good I didn't have a fever at all yesterday but she's coughing her sinuses are draining into her uh, throat is what it is it doesn't it's not like a doesn't seem like a deep chest cough. Anyway, if it does, I'll take her to the doctor. But it seems like a... <clears throat> and she considers that to be like hacking, coughing. That's a cough. So that's good. A little bit of cough medicine is helping with that. And like I say, that she doesn't have a fever anymore. So thanks to everyone. I, on the other hand, woke up with a sore throat. Because why? Because you do everything you can to avoid it, and then you get it, whatever is going around. I don't know that I actually have it. It could just be that I had the fans on and all the vaporizers in the house in one room to make it make the whole room smell like a pack of menthol cigarettes. But, yeah, we'll see. Small price to pay. I'll happily shoulder the burden if they can get it off of them. All right, so we've got a lot of ground to cover, lots of stuff going on in the world. And I want to start off today... I can't believe that in 2022 we are talking about this garbage still. But this is who the Democrats are. This is what the Democrats have become. This is their priority, the idea of gender. And that you can't really know what's going on. And what's important, you know, you can sit there and adults on television can theorize about it and go, well, you know, uh, there are children out there who are suffering. And we must then bow to all of their whims. And, you know, the 99.99% of us, we must change our perception of reality 
and kowtow to the whims of this 0.001% of the population at most. And you go, why? Why should, well, you know, I'm not for, you know, telling these people to go to hell. I'm not for telling any, well, liberals can go to hell, but I'm not for sitting here telling kids, you get bent. I don't really care that you're, you're sad or whatever. But I think that counseling, talking to somebody might be a better way to go, a significantly better way to go than to sit there and simply say, we have to pretend that up is down and that left is right and that north is south and that girls are boys and boys are girls. We have to go. We have to do all of these things lest we offend the most fragile among us. I'm not trying to mock the most fragile among us. I'm trying to mock the people who are trying to bully the rest of society. Those are the people I shall mock. That is where my mockery is directed. But it's important to know that that's what these people are trying to do. Don't help the people. They say, I, I believe that I am, a, I am a teapot. I am both short and stout. Here is my handle. Here is my spout. And I identify as a teapot. Now, normally, you'd look at that person and go, okay, that person needs help. Nowadays, you can't. Nowadays, you couldn't remake Arsenic and Old Lace. There's a famous character in there that uh, pretends or thinks, believes, he's insane, believes that he's Teddy Roosevelt. Not Teddy Roosevelt reincarnated. He believes he's Teddy Roosevelt. And every time he goes up the stairs, it's like it's San Juan Hill. He charge, pulls an imaginary sword and goes, it's a hilarious movie couldn't make that today because everybody's in on the joke to that person that Teddy, Uncle Teddy, is not Teddy Roosevelt. Now they'd all have to go, he is, okay, we have, he is Teddy Roosevelt. They all pretend that he is, but that would be considered a hate crime. They do that because otherwise you'll go crazy if you don't acknowledge him as Teddy Roosevelt. Kind of actually a lot like these people who say, I'm a bird. And you need, I, my, my pronouns are frog. And they're like, no, they're not. I don't care. Well, you're going to upset me. I might do myself harm. I, I don't care. All right. You are not mentally deficient. You are mentally indulged. Most of these people are. There are some people who do have mental problems. And there are other people who've just simply not heard the word no enough in their lives. Their parents have indulged them. They have been filled up with self-esteem like you wouldn't believe. Not accomplishment participation trophies. This is what happens when your entire life is spent accumulating participation trophies. That you sit there and go, I'm, uh, I'm, my pronouns are bird and bird self. So refer to me as that. No, no. In fact, I, I'll refer to you as that lunatic until you're no longer a factor in my life. Okay, fair enough. But everybody else, the people who genuinely suffer from gender dysphoria, they need to be in counseling. If you're depressed, if you're suicidal, if you're doing self-harm, you need to get some counseling. Don't blow them off. Instead, the left has said, no, we all have to pretend that he really is Teddy Roosevelt. That mockery, that knowing wink and nod that we do to one another, we're no longer allowed to do that about Teddy Roosevelt because he is Teddy Roosevelt. Anybody can be Teddy Roosevelt. All you have to do is declare yourself to be Teddy Roosevelt. And talk about damaging children, of course. 
Democrats don't really give a damn about damaging children. They want to control them and control their minds and most importantly, ultimately, how they vote. So if some of them have to go by the wayside, some of them have to do permanent damage to their bodies, so be it. So be it. It's not about helping the 0.01%. It's about controlling the 99.99%. Jump through this hoop. Do what we say. Boy is girl. Girl is boy. And in fact... Gender doesn't even exist. And so you see this manifest itself in schools across the country all the time. These libs of TikTok videos, they just expose themselves as these people who should not be anywhere near children. They should not be able to live in within a, a square mile of a school, let alone be working inside the school. But there they are, and they are so emboldened and protected by the Democratic Party to damage your children, that they make videos of themselves and post them online. These aren't even surreptitiously recorded videos of some student going, this teacher's nuts, the world needs to know this. This is the, these are the teachers themselves holding the camera up to their face going, here's, here's uh, why I started crying today, because one of my students told me their pronouns were F and U, and oh, I just loved it. Oh, really? You sound mentally unstable, and I wouldn't like you to move into my neighborhood because it would impact property values negatively. But okay, you do you. Here's a nice little padded room for you over in the corner. Get over there and uh, talk to the counselor. Until then, you know, we're going to lock you in here. I want to play you one such video. This is a teacher who, and, uh, you know, as more and more parents, and this is really why you really if you have school age children or grandchildren you really need to pay attention to this because this is this is damaging this is insane and this is expressly against the wishes of the parents teachers have a job to do they don't do it but they have a job to do to teach children and so many of these teachers, after having been told by the administration or more directly by the parents through referendums or through their elected officials that you're supposed to speak, to stick to reading, writing, and arithmetic, are saying, okay, I now have to find stealth ways to incorporate this screwed up gender dysphoria garbage into the learning process, or I am simply going to stand athwart these orders bear my rear end and tell everybody to get bent. But for some weird reason, both sides of that, that scale there, whichever side these liberals are on, they're all in favor of telling the world through their TikTok videos. Anyway, thank God for libs of TikTok. This teacher is trying to find a way to um, remove gendered pronouns from report card comments. You remember, your, now this is elementary school stuff. In high school, all the comments, at least in my high school, all the comments were letters, like A or numbers. I can't remember if they were letters or numbers. One, seven, and 15. And you go, what the hell does that mean from my, uh, my science teaching? You flip over the back and there's courteous, rude, whatever. They were a lot of times less than positive, but my grades were mostly good. Uh, but that was it. It was, it was generic things. It was choose your own adventure on the back. But in elementary school, you had the long form report card that wasn't printed up in a dot matrix computer. God, my 
my school was backwards. They were written up by hand and they could put notes at the bottom. They actually wrote paragraphs and mostly uh, I did okay, okay in elementary school. But my my citizenship grades, which which means behavior, were always bad. If I'd grown up today, I would have been, you know, just shot up full of Ritalin like you wouldn't believe it. So I always got D's, C's and D's. I got grounded for anything less than a C. And one time I got an E in citizenship in elementary school. Citizenship was just an arbitrary thing. You had Here's how bad it was. You had to maintain a C average in citizenship to be able to be a part of safety patrol, which means you got that nifty little orange belt and you got to tell kids when they could cross the street or whatnot. And you could only be on safety patrol in fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. Fourth grade, I got kicked off before the citizenship could have gotten me kicked off. We got kicked off for, uh, we tormented the classroom with uh, rocks and mud and, and knocking on the door and putting the garbage can in front of it and then stupidly walking past it. Anyway, we got caught doing some stupid things. Uh, fifth grade, I got booted off for citizenship. Sixth grade, I barely made it. Barely made the reward for being on citizenship. Half All you had to do was be on the state patrol for half the year to get this reward is you go to Boblo Island, which was uh, an amusement park island in the Detroit River between Canada and, uh, and uh, it might have been Lake Erie, but um, between Canada and the United States, you got to take a, a big paddle boat down there. You got to do that. Only one year of the three that I tried did I qualify to go to Boblo Island. And then the ultimate joke was on me because I hated the rides. That was where I discovered I hated the rides. So I didn't even enjoy it. So <laughs> it sucked, but I was that bad of a kid. And I would get creative, interesting comments in the comments section on my report card to my parents. The notes were always written to my parents. Now, this teacher is trying to find a way because they always said he does this and he does that. And why would they do that? Why would they misgender me? Because I am a male and he is the gender pronoun that I use, that everybody should use because it's accurate. This teacher wants to get rid of that, and she thinks she's found a creative way or has been told a creative way on how to avoid that. So if your teacher starts writing comments like this, your kid's teacher, beware and get them the hell out of that class as quickly as humanly possible. One last idea for this series about how to support students who don't identify as cisgender in your classroom, and that has to do with report card comments. Many students don't identify with the same pronouns and names at home as they might at school or with friends. And so this makes report card comments and communication home really complicated. Personally, I've been trying to take gender out of my report card comments altogether, but I recently heard a great suggestion from our school's GSA who suggested to make report card comments directed specifically to the student. So using the word you takes out the need to use a name or any gender pronouns. And so that's what I'm going to try next time. It sounds like an ideal best practice. How do you tackle this? How do you tackle this? Uh, I vomit uncontrollably when I hear people like you. That's how I tackle this. And then I take my children as far away from you. I tell them, stay away from that person. They're bad. Write comments to the children. Is the report card to the child? Can't wait for that movement. Hey, let's not tell the parents what's going on. This is all part of an attempt, a decree, really, a demand of the left to make sure that parents don't know what's going on with their own children. 
to make sure that parents have no idea what is going on with their own children. They don't want you to know. Who are you anyway? I mean, come on. You, yeah, you're the technical, biological, you're the birthing person and the inseminating person if you happen to be together. But anything constitutes a family, and that includes, I think these people think it includes, because they sit there and they tell you, well, you can, you can have thruples, you can have quadruples, you can have anything constitutes a family. Love is love and blah, blah, blah. And I think that these people are largely childless. Definitely unloved. I mean, I don't know how their parents could love them. Maybe some of them do. Some of them had to create them. I think it's mostly they're created out of a lack of love and neglect by their parents, but that's beside the point. Uh, they don't have children, and so they look at it, oh, everybody, oh, these are our children. These are my children. These are this. These are that. These are the other things. And maybe unconsciously, maybe consciously, depends on the person, they, they are adhering to the misery loves company theory. They just create more and more misery. They don't care what the parents want. They actually seem to enjoy getting around the parents. So if you get a report card where the comments in it are directed towards the child, you would probably ask yourself, well, that's weird. What the hell does little Billy have to do with this? Why are you writing a note to Billy? Uh, you're reporting to me. The report card is to the parent to let the parent know. So that hopefully the parent, if the child isn't doing well, will get off their butt and help them more. And if the kid's doing well, then the kid will uh, be encouraged to do even better. But no, if the teacher's writing notes home to the kid, that teacher's hiding something. That teacher is hiding something. All of these teachers, in fact, or many of these teachers, I should say, are in fact hiding something and they're being instructed to hide things. Now, this story from the Daily Caller goes right along with what I've been saying. The headline, Maryland's school, Maryland Schools Guidelines Claim Kids Have a Right to Keep In-School Gender Identities Private. Schools are enabling children to hide things from their parents. In fact, the schools are insisting they're not only saying, okay, we can't hide the, the parent. The kid comes to the class and says to the teacher, the counselor, and says, please don't tell my parents. They'll be wildly upset. That's different than the school saying, we can't, don't tell the parents. Doesn't matter. We don't want the parents to know. We're keeping things, from, including, up to and including God knows what. You know, hey, your kid's suddenly on hormone blockers, on puberty blockers. Uh, oh, the school didn't tell you. The counselor took care of it. Don't worry. It's in your child's best interest. You wouldn't have done it. You don't know your child's best interest. We do. The story, a Maryland public school district asserts kids have a right to keep their in-school gender identities private from parents, according to Montgomery County Public Schools Guidelines for Students' Gender Identity. Isn't that lovely? Why in the hell would a school have these? It's a Montgomery County. Montgomery County is wildly wealthy and incredibly liberal. There, you know, there's part of me that says if they want to destroy their own kids, I don't really care. The kids are going to hate them one day. The vast majority of them are going to hate them one day. But you are dealing with ruining other people's lives, and that's where I have a problem with it. The guidelines vow to, quote, respect the right of students to keep their gender identity or transgender status private and confidential, including parents who do not affirm the child's perceived gender identity. 
When building a gender support plan, educators are told to work with students' families only, quote, if the family is supportive of the student and their perceived identity, according to the district's guidance. Educators are told not to contact students' parents or guardians until they speak with the student to, quote, ascertain the level of support the student either receives or anticipates receiving from home. So don't tell the parents. Keep it a secret from parents. Enable the kids all you want. Put them in touch with various counselors who will steer them, like Captain Steubing, toward whatever port they want them to. Indulge their every whim, every neuroses, every false preconceived notion about life. No one will tell them. You don't, look, you don't know what a what a, a woman feels like or a man. You're, you just give me a break with this. You're a you're a puppy gender, okay? You got other serious problems. Maybe mommy and daddy neglect you too much. Whatever it is, you got more serious problems. Why don't we address those rather than you know start calling you they self and themself and Z and all this other crap? How about we do that? No, can't do that. And they don't want your you the parent to be told because you might not, and that's the perceived the perceived reception it will get at home. They don't want the parents to be told. So you want a school district enabling, empowering your children to keep something like this from you? To keep something like the school is putting them in touch with gender-affirming care specialists? You want that school to keep that from you? Quote, in some cases, transgender and gender nonconforming students may not openly express their gender identity at home because of safety concerns or lack of acceptance, the guidance states. All students have a right to privacy, the guidance continues. This includes the right to keep private one's transgender status or gender nonconforming presentation at school. No, it doesn't. Staff members are required to call transgender students by their identified names and or pronouns and to, quote, the extent possible, school personnel will make efforts to maintain the confidentiality of the student's transgender status. The school, the state, is usurping the rights and roles of parents. Why? Because it serves liberal orthodoxy. It serves the liberal agenda. To hell with you. To hell with you. You don't want this crap taught in school? All right, fine. We won't teach this crap in school. Don't tell parents anything about what's going on here. The only reason schools are reopened... Look, the, the teachers' unions didn't want schools to reopen. They didn't want schools to reopen. They don't give a damn that's kid, that kids were being hurt. They knew that kids were being hurt. The only reason they want schools reopen is so they can get back to pushing this left-wing crap. The problem with distance learning was that suddenly parents found out what was going on in the classroom, what the teachers were teaching. Oh, it's it's National Trans Day, and I'm a trans teacher. Uh. And all the students are sitting there watching this crap, and the parents are hearing this stuff going, what are you watching, some sort of demented fairy tale thing or what? No, it's your teacher. Your teacher talking about things that the teacher no business talking about. Said it before, but it bears repeating. When I was a kid in school, 
I knew my teachers. I didn't know my teachers had first names. Miss Miss Forstrom, Mister Duffy. That was it. When you run into them in the wild on the rare occasion, you see them at Sears or at the grocery store. You go, oh my God, they eat food too. Look at over there, and you looked at them like they're weirdos. You didn't go up to them and say, "Hey, Mister Duffy, how you doing?" You're like, "Oh my God, does he know me? Does is he what? Can I get a detention? What's going on?" And you kind of hid behind your mom, going, "Oh, there's Mister Duffy over there. Don't make any eye contact. I don't know how to handle this. I don't know how to to do this." And then you just go, "Oh, hi," and they go, "Hi," and then you you go about your business, and then you find your friends. Like, I saw Mister Duffy. Do you know that he eats lettuce? Oh my God, he eats real food. That was it. I had no idea if he was married, if any of them were married, except for the women. It was Ms. or Mrs. That was it. They weren't my pal. They weren't my friends. They weren't my priest. I didn't go there for confession. I went there to learn. I barely did that. That was back when teachers were good. That was my fault in the last part. But that is what it should be. Now it's, oh, my students and my children and, oh, they're my kids. And they're not your kids. Show me a DNA test where that's your kid. Show me where you feed, clothe, and house that kid. All right? Show me where you had that kid. What hospital did you pay? Show me, you know, if you want, I'm sure these parents will happily shoot you a whole bunch of bills. You want a piece of the action, you'd pay uh, 25%. Well, there'd be three of you that pay 33% of those bills. Otherwise, they're not your kids. Okay? They're not your kids. They're somebody else's kids. Your sad little existence hasn't afforded you kids and probably never will because you're really just an unbearable person and who the hell would want to have relations with you, let alone reproduce with you. I understand that. But how about that? You just do your job, all right? If you have a school where every child can read and write and do math at the grade level, they are supposed to be able to read and write and do math. Show me that data, and at that point, I will personally advocate for you being able to screw around with all this other gender garbage and environmental you can scare the hell out of them about climate you can do whatever you want if you do your job the way you're supposed to do your job the way you're paid for doing your job then game on all right until then how about you just focus on doing your job this is the problem with tenure these teachers like the one we just heard like the teachers we've heard from libs of tiktok all throughout this entire scandal they don't care. They, they've got their jobs. They've got tenure. They've got the union backing them up. They've got weirdo mutants like Randy Weingarten saying it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We're going to protect these student, these teachers forever. No matter how horrible a student or a teacher is, the union is there to protect them. I've told this story before. I'll tell this story again. This is my problem with teachers' unions. When I was a... Uh, sophomore in high school there was a french teacher i didn't take french but everybody knew who the french teacher was then junior the summer after sophomore year comes back you come back junior year the french teacher is gone there's a new french teacher there what happened to the old french teacher did she retire did you go 
teach. She was too young to retire. Did she win the lottery? Did she move? What's going on? And then you come to find out that the French teacher and her husband were arrested for cocaine trafficking. Oopsie daisy, cocaine trafficking. They spent the entire year, school year anyway, in prison or involved in some kind of uh, legal battle, as is often the case when you decide to go to Colombia and try to traffic cocaine. Then, lo and behold, now, the, I didn't, like I said, I didn't take French. The French teacher who was replaced the charged, accused cocaine trafficker was apparently a fine French teacher. Never heard any complaints about her either. Then comes senior year and the new French teacher is gone. Gone. Not another cocaine trafficking French teacher. I think there's probably only one of those at a time. They're like Highlanders. But the old French teacher was back. Union, yes. Turns out that between the, in the summer from junior year to senior year, the uh, French teacher and the French teacher's husband had cut themselves a deal where they'd turn state's evidence, particularly the husband, in exchange for a lesser sentence against him and a complete dropping of the charges against her. Now, when you make that kind of deal, it is sort of a pretty good omission or uh, admission that you did something, right? I mean, if you're going to turn state's evidence, you've got to have some evidence to turn to the state, right? Well, since the charges were dropped against her, she was therefore, in the eyes of the law, not guilty of anything. And she was therefore, in the eyes of the union, fully entitled to have her job back. Get her job back, because why not? And so she did. And so she was back. I remember the my senior year is when I took German. German was at the end of the hallway. The second classroom from the end of the hall was the French room. And as I would walk out on occasion, we would drag our fingers along the chalk rest on the chalkboard. German classroom had chalkboards at both ends of the classroom. And as you walked out, you dragged your finger and you got a nice bunch of chalk and you rubbed it under your nose. And you went, I mean, I probably inhaled a whole bunch of chalk when I was a senior in high school. But you did that as you walked past the French teacher. And there wasn't a damn thing she could do about it. She wouldn't say anything about it to the point that she stopped coming out of her class. Now we would be the problem. Now we would be the mean old bullies. She'd be a hero trying to, you know, I don't know, engage in cultural diversity or something. But yeah, you want to know why I'm so cynical about teachers and want to know why I'm not the biggest fan of teachers' unions? They trade legitimate grievances for bad people. They do it all the time. They did it in my school. You watch what these Democrats are doing, you have to sit there and go, what in the hell is going on in this country? At what point do parents have enough? And you sit there and you think, well, maybe... Maybe the, uh, there is no point at which people will say there's enough. And that's a scary thought, but it's true. Some people are. There was a story last week about a, a, a an academic, a scholar, a think tank guy named Rye Teixeira, I think his name is how you pronounce it. R-U-Y, I don't, I've never heard the, 
name RUI before, but he's apparently a well-respected liberal think tanker, blah, blah, blah. He was over at the Center for American Progress, and as the name indicates, it is left-wing crap over there. And uh, he left. He quit. He quit the, the confines of a left-wing think tank where he was you know, a hero. He was a rock star. And he went over to the American Enterprise Institute. Now, when I, back in my day, let me, get all, let me get my dentures all set. Back in my day, the American Enterprise Institute was a conservative uh, organization. And it was. They, uh, they were right there with us when I was at the Heritage Foundation in the early 2000s in the battle against you know, Medicare expansion, trying to save Medicare from going broke, saving the country from going broke, so on and so forth. They recognized that the entitlements needed to be reformed. Joe Antos, the guy who runs that program now, was their, their health policy scholar. I worked with Joe. He probably doesn't remember me because there's probably been about 100 people since then. But he, uh, we've worked together with him and my boss, Bob Moffitt, to uh, try and save the country from fiscal ruin, $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities, which still sits out there and stalks us like Jason Voorhees, Freddy Krueger. But uh, they've since gone, uh, I don't know, moderate on a lot of things. They have, I guess. I mean, that's, it's a think tank. you got to go, I guess, where the money is. And they had... Uh, Arthur Brooks is their president, good guy, but a very let's all get along kind of guy. And he started bringing in liberals. And he had events with George Soros and things like that. And you can sit there and your skin can crawl at the concept, but that's what happened. AEI is still valuable. And they have now hired this guy. Now, why did this guy leave the confines of a liberal think tank where he is a hero? or was a hero, now he's probably a goat. And it's because he said that the left only focuses on skin color and sexuality. Not in that, didn't say that in the uh, <laughs> finest of words, in the, in the exact words, but that was the gist of it, was that the left is so obsessed with identity politics that it crowds out everything else. That it calls, you know, he's more interested in class and that income is the great divider in this country. And the left has said, no, 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 we want to divide based on skin color. Why? Because they don't really want to talk about. Though they'll complain every once in a while, they'll throw a bomb and say, well, uh, we uh, we think they're all racist, they're horrible, and they're they're the party of the rich. But they're all rich. All these lefties are rich. All these lefties are rich. Politico wrote a story about this. In it, they write, To hear Teixeira tell it, Cap and the rest of Washington's institutional-based left stopped being a place where he could do the work he wanted. The reason, he says, is the relentless focus on race, gender, and identity in historically liberal foundations and think tanks has made it hard to do work that looks at society through other prisms. It also makes people nervous about projects that could be accused of giving short shrift to anti-racist efforts. See? You do not go against the golden god. Quote, he says... 
I would say that anybody who has a fundamentally class-oriented perspective, who thinks that it's more important, a more important lens and doesn't assume that any disparity is automatically a lens of racism, sexism, or what have you, I think that perspective is not congenial in most left institutions, he said. So they're one of their heroes. And if you look at this guy and you look up his uh, his past, he is one of those guys that the left has cited. From a policy perspective, he might as well be on their Mount Rushmore. But he had to leave the left, the uh, institutional left, the academic left, the intelligentsia left. He had to leave it because he wasn't obsessed and wasn't interested in obsessing about race and gender and sexual orientation the way that the rest of the left is, which tells you something, that they've hit pay dirt, that the left has hit pay dirt, that somebody like this at an institution like the Center for American Progress, which is a very well-funded institution, that they cannot operate effectively, that the powers that be that run a place like the Center for American Progress, that they can't go to him and say, look, you, you do you. We'll protect you from the outrage mob. We'll insulate you. We'll make sure. Don't worry. You do you. What's important is your work. They can't do, they won't do that. That they won't do that tells you that they're getting a ton of money, a ton of money to push this left-wing garbage, this divisive garbage, that they are getting orders, that they are getting polling data, that the best shot that Democrats have, particularly in the fall, but even long-term, is the continued division of the American people along the lines of race, gender, sexual orientation, sexual identity, generated, whatever the hell they come up with next. Not about income. Can't be about income. The income idea makes who nervous? Well, it makes those incredibly wealthy donors that write six and seven figure checks to the Center for American Progress and other left-wing think tanks like the Brookings Institute. It makes them wildly uncomfortable. Makes them very, very uncomfortable. You can't have an institution where you sell the naming rights to various meeting rooms and things like that in their building, which is a big deal amongst the donor class on both sides of the aisle. You can't have that and then have somebody, perhaps your most prominent scholar, doing something that does not conform with the flavor of the month. See, the donors follow the news. They don't lead the news. Most of these people are so wealthy that they don't even know what day of the week it is, and whatever day of the week it is, it doesn't matter to them. That's how wealthy they are. They're retired, or they inherited money, or whatever, and they've just got, they're going, where am I going to vacation next? That's their biggest concern. But for the virtue signaling aspect of their DNA, that needs to be fed, and so they go, all right, there's an annual gala for the big money donors at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. The president will be there. I will be there, too. I will get to meet with the president. I will. Do, all it cost me was a million dollars. And you say, a million dollars, that's a lot of money. Not to these people. If you had... 900 million dollars when you 
Oh, you can get a room named after you, and every time the president comes, you can meet with the president whenever you want. So you can't give a million dollars to the president. You can't give a million dollars to the Democrats. But you can give a million dollars to a disconnected appendage of the Democrats and the president, the Center for American Progress, so that when you want to meet with the president, the president knows he can get 100000 out of you, and he knows you gave a million, and it's the same thing as giving, to, it's a by proxy donation. So you get to meet with the president. You get to go to the dinners with the president. You get to whatever you want, really. So you do it as a vanity project. And you follow the news. And what's in the news? Well, the left has full, a full-throated embrace of gender dysphoria, of everything is racist, everybody's a victim, everything is horrible. This country sucks. And so what are you going to do? You're going to go, all right, well, I believe in those things. We need to fund these things. My God, I didn't realize that people were so oppressed. But now that I know it, we shall forever fight this. I will fight this oppression with every fiber of my being. And they go off. And these usually largely white liberal donors go off and give a fortune to these think tanks. Why? Because why not? What else are they going to do with that money? You can only sail so many yachts. You can only, you know, hire so many call girls. So you just go along with it. And now suddenly somebody comes along and says something else is more important. That person saying something else is more important is upsetting the apple cart when it comes to the fundraising. What if those people find out that the real problem in America, the real divide in America is the haves and the have-nots? And how the haves are insisting that the have-nots have to conform to how they uh, want them to live. Well, that's the essence of liberalism. All these wealthy people are the problem? Telling everybody else how to live? You can't have that. You can't have they get They act stupid. They act as though they don't know what the hell's going on. You watch these people crumble when something upsets the apple cart, when somebody doesn't play the game. This story out of the UK. A writer and coach has revealed how she faced a backlash after a viral letter in which she said, quote, I'm not oppressed because I'm black, end quote. Africa Brooke, 29 years old, who lives in London, spoke to the diary of a CEO host, Stephen Bartlett, I assume it's some sort of podcast, about her views on race and what it really means to be oppressed for his popular podcast. The writer and coach specializes in helping people and groups with personal or professional challenges related to self-censorship and self-sabotage and has 229,000 followers on Instagram. Last year, she wrote an open letter declaring that she was, quote, leaving the cult of wokeness that insists that she will, quote, forever be oppressed because she's black, while others told her she's not truly black because of it. She refuses to be a victim and she is told, no, you're not really black. Now, ironically, she's told she's not really black by mostly white people, mostly white liberals who are out there and uh, are either funding places like the Center for American Progress or are the grist that is being ground up in the mill over there. They are the good dogs who obey. Meanwhile, the donors are vacationing on mega yachts. Looking at the uh, news today, it's like, just here at the Daily Mail. There's the Beckhams. They live in Los Angeles. 
David and uh, whatever sporty spice or whatever spice, posh spice. The Beckhams, they're vacationing this week in Saint-Tropez. Their vacation is costing 1.6 million pounds per day. That's, I think it's like 1.4, 1.3 million pounds per day. They've got a mega luxury yacht that they've rented and so on and so forth. I don't begrudge them. They've got the money. They can spend it however they want. But they are also of the same mindset that they need to. It's about gender. It's about sexual orientation, sexual identity. Focus on all of these things. Well, uh, forgive me if I don't take the word of people who give a million dollars to the Center for American Progress like it's candy, telling me, shut up, you don't know how bad you've got it, or you don't know how good you've got it, or whatever, learn your place, recognize you're a victim, or you're a perp, or whatever, while we're paying $4.50 a gallon for gas. It doesn't, you think $4.50 a gallon for gas bothers these people? No. These rich liberals? Absolutely not. When do you think the last time one of these people filled their own gas tank was? When do you think the last time one of these people filled their own gas tank was? Or, better yet, since they don't drive themselves, when do you think the last time their driver's like, sir, we're going to have to pull over here for some Grey Poupon and to make sure that we get some gas? No. The car is fully fueled by the time it picks them up. When they go to bed at night and their driver says, good night, sir, don't talk to me. Well, good night, sir. They not only wash the car and wipe it down with a diaper, they fill the tank up so that when it is next needed, when they choose not to take the helicopter, that it is fully loaded so that they don't have to stop on their way to somewhere and get some gas. You see these guys. Uh, they get, you know, during the day, they drop somebody off at a meeting, and what do they do? They run to the gas station. They, they fill it up. That's when they go to the bathroom. They're absolutely living in the whims of the windows of somebody else's schedule. That might be a bigger problem, according to this scholar at that used to be at the Center for American Progress, who is now at the American Enterprise Institute. That idea, which, by the way, is pretty much what Tucker Carlson advocates, by the you know, just, just so you know, if you pay attention and listen to what Tucker's talking about, that's what he talks about, the mega-rich trying to control everybody else. That scares the hell out of anybody. That is, a, that is kryptonite to the left. That doesn't help the liberal agenda. That wouldn't help Joe Biden. He's uber-wealthy. His family is wealthy. His donors are wealthier than him. The people who are controlling him are wealthier still. You don't want to upset that apple cart. They might not pay you. They might not fund you can't acknowledge that's a problem can't call out the hypocrisy of al gore buying an oceanfront estate in the state of california oceanfront in california why what we're all going to be underwater soon aren't we al do as i say not as i do so yeah it's surprising to see politico having written this up it's surprising to see these leftists expose themselves it's not surprising to see somebody say you're not really black if you're not willing to embrace your oppression then you're not really black and you sit there and you go what in the hell is wrong with people when did victimhood become the coin of the realm it's not the coin of the realm it's the pass card to get in it is the means of control 
victimhood is aspired. The more of a victim you are, the better you are. Except for if you're rich, then you're not a victim. You're the puppet master. What's scary and sad is there are just so many damn willing puppets in this country. Uh, shift, oh, by the way, before we shift gears away from this, I was going to shift gears away from this, but I, you watch these stories and since we talked about it, I saw this tweet the other day from the Stonewall Charity. It's LGBTQRSTUVWXYZ Charity. And they claimed that uh, two-year-olds can know whether they're trans or not, which is, it's just not true. It's just impossible. But they, uh, to try and normalize this trans business, they have to try and loop in as many people as they can. So if you're, you know, a newborn picks up a Barbie doll, like, oh, it's a boy, but he's playing with a girl toy. Clearly trans, clearly trans. Forget snipping off the uh, umbilical cord. Go a little bit lower. Let's get this show on the road. That sort of mentality. They have to normalize abnormal. And so that's how they choose to do it. Well, this they, they caught all sorts of hell saying two two-year-olds know what the hell they're talking about. So now the Daily Mail has a story. LGBT plus charity. Do they not do the QIAs, XYZs and everything? Hmm. Tonight clarified a tweet posted over the weekend in which it claimed children as young as two can recognize their transgender. The pro-trans group shared a Metro article about a non-conforming four-year-old whose nursery doesn't respect their attitudes. Oh, no. See, a four-year-old. The four-year-olds don't have thoughts of their own. Four-year-olds are sponges that regurgitate and squeeze out whatever else you got. That's it. Period. End of story. Whatever you put into them is what they will squish out. The pro-trans group, blah, 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 Stonewall wrote, quote, research suggests that children as young as two recognize their trans identity. Yet many nurseries and schools teach a binary understanding of pre-assigned gender. <laughs> LGBTQ inclusive and affirming education is crucial for the well-being of all young people. Well, then I don't care about the well-being of all young people. Eh, just say it. That divided Twitter with campaigners complaining. The tweet was evidence of Stonewall's extreme ideological belief that biological sex doesn't matter. Transgender trend director. God, can you believe that... That's a job title somebody has. Transgender trend director. Stephanie Davies Ariel said, quote, There needs to be an urgent inquiry into how an organization with this extreme ideology has been allowed to influence schools. But Stonewall responded tonight with a statement clarifying the original tweet. They wrote, quote, We were commenting on an article written by a parent reflecting on how their child was being cared for at a nursery. The parent was worried their child was being pressured to fit in with stereotypes about boys and girls. While we don't actively work on nursery education, we believe that children should be able to play, explore, and learn about who they are and the world around them without having adults' ideas imposed upon them, which is exactly what these people are doing, by the way. You picked up a Barbie! You're trans! Wear a dress! We're going to start calling you... Don't you, want to be call don't you want to be called Betty? No. You sure you don't want to be called Betty? Yeah, get a cookie if you want to be called Betty. Oh, a cookie. Hey, all right, you can call me Betty. I don't care. You can call me Al. Do-do-do-do. 
We support, it continues, existing provisions to ensure primary and secondary school pupils learn about LGBTQ plus identities at an age-appropriate and timely manner. No. No. I just tell you, go to hell. Can we just say that? Are we allowed to say that? Go to hell. Age-appropriate manner. You don't need... I don't know. You know... um, the tribe in Africa where they extend the necks, they put the rings around the neck, and they just, you learn, how do you learn about it? Do you wait for an age-appropriate manner? No. Maybe you should, maybe you should. You learn about it by accidentally come across a picture of it, and you go, oh my God, is this real? And that's how you learn about it, because that's about as relevant as it really is. These people are crazy. Oh, they used to bind feet in China, and you learn about that, and you go, that's sick and cruel, and you're like, all right, we're moving on. That's how you learn about this stuff. You don't need to be sat down and talked about, here's how you do it. This is what this one means, and this is what the other one means. And by the way, there'll be a test on this. Well, are we ever going to actually learn math in this? We'll learn to count to however many genders you all make up during the course of this class. That's the math that we'll learn. You wonder why kids are so stupid. You wonder why kids are so screwed up. You wonder why meth is popular. You wonder why more and more uh, there are more and more um, emotionally and mentally unstable people engaging in mass killings and just killings in general. You wonder why that is because they've got this perverted worldview where life is nothing and nothing actually is anything. And nothing matters. It's life is whatever you want to declare it to be and life is meaningless and forget it you can kill pregnant women can kill their babies and you can kill your uh your grandpa or grandma because they're just not well would just euthanize them there life is losing all meaning and then some people act like life has no meaning no value and they go oh my god what is going on with society well (laughs) society's listening that's what's going on with society people paid attention that's what happened (sighs) It's amazing. It's amazing. All uh, right. Now I want to shift to uh, what do you call it? inflation and the numbers that are going to be coming out this week to find out whether or not we are officially in a recession. Honestly, I don't think the numbers matter all that much. I think it's it doesn't matter if you're technically in a recession. Do you feel like you're doing economically well right now under the Biden regime? I don't think you are. I don't think very many people are. Oh, the uber wealthy are, certainly. They're doing well. But otherwise, normal Americans are not. And so you end up in a situation where the Democrats have to convince you that you you don't know how good you've got it. It's a weird, weird argument to have to make, but it's pretty much all they've got. It's what they have to try to make. As such... And what happens in these situations? Karine Jean-Pierre, have I mentioned, did you know that she's historic? Swear to God, true story. She is historic. She is uh, black and lesbian and an immigrant. So it's like triple. She's the tripod of historic. Uh, She sucks at her job, but she's historic. She sucks historically at her job. She's like the worst ever. So again, totally historic. She was asked about what I told you about yesterday and how the White House is trying to redefine what a recession is. Recessions, you can ask anybody who pays attention to the news, and a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth in the GDP. That's it. That's it. It's a pretty basic thing. 
And yet the White House says, well, that's not necessarily a a recession anymore. Why? Well, because we're probably going to have two consecutive quarters of uh, negative growth and we don't want the Biden recession to become a thing. So she was asked, she being Karine Jean-Pierre, historic press secretary, was asked about this. You're about to hear some verbal gymnastics. I assume that before she goes out there to the podium in the James Brady press briefing room, she does a lot of verbal yoga to be able to do these uh, verbal gymnastics that she has to go through, most of which she's reading. So if it sounds wildly insincere, it's only because it is wildly insincere. She's reading it from her her three-ring binder that controls everything about her life. But ultimately, all she does is dodge. Listen to it for yourself. Next week's a very big week for the economy. So I read the CEA blog. Is the White House trying to change the common definition of a recession? Because next Thursday, the GDP numbers coming out are going to show that we've been in a recession. So let me say this. You know, the strength of our labor market, along with the other economic uh, factors, is what, what we generally see in a recession or even a pre a pre what. It's not what we generally see in a recession or even a pre-recession because we're seeing the strength of the economy and the labor market. So that's really important uh, to note there, there because those are uh, key elements as we talk about that, as folks keep asking us about that. So Americans across the country are back to work uh, at a historic level. 21 states, the most in history, have unemployed rates, unemployment rates at or below 3%. Uh, That is an important number to note. 14 states uh, are now at their lowest unemployment rates since this series began in 1976. And last month, the unemployment rate was a new low in eight states. So again, the strength of our labor market, along with the economic indicators, is not what we generally see uh, as we talk about uh, recession or even (laughs) pre-recession. What? What? Huh? She is spinning. She is, uh, I assume she takes Dramamine every day before she walks out to that podium because she is about to spin like you wouldn't believe. Now, the reporter, whoever it was, to his credit, kind of goes, it smells like BS. And he goes back for a second bite at the apple. The job for the three months trend, the growth of job growth in the U.S. is, is shrinking, is decreasing, and 7.5 million people, a growing number, are, are multi-jobs, meaning they have to work more than one job to afford a living. So is jobs really a good indicator? Then? Oh, look, here's what I would say. We've always talked about the strength of our economy. We've always start, talked about how historic it's been, and we've always talked about the transitioning, right, the transitioning to more stable uh, and steady growth. And so to your point about uh, the job growth there, this is what we have been kind of stating for the past uh, several months. Look, you know, the economy created 1.1 million jobs in the second quarter. Uh, and so, and around 375 jobs per month. Those are historic numbers. Uh, those are, if you think about the the 1.1 million jobs, we are back to where we were uh, at pre-pandemic levels. So that is what we see as strength of the economy. Again, we're going to transition uh, into a more stable uh, and steady growth, and uh, and so we're going to continue the work that the president has set out to do uh, to make sure that we continue to deliver for the American people when it comes to the economy. All right, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we got job growth. And then she gives it away. We're back to where we were. We're back to... So we just recovered the jobs after the lockdown. 
we, that's both mostly what we've done. And you're like, no, 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 it's a huge, huge uptick in the economy. It's what, no, you you just took the the leg of the chair, the lounge chair you're sitting in, off the hose. That's why the sprinkler shot to the roof. Not because suddenly you discovered how to create water. These people are nuts. These people are terrified. There's a reason they're terrified. Of course, the media is going to help cover it, so they don't really have to be all that scared. Since we're talking about recessions, and we'll find out. And I Look, the White House is trying too hard to redefine what constitutes a recession for them not to be worried about us being in a recession. I think it's pretty obvious that we're in a recession, but I guarantee you that the messages being sent by the White House and all their advisors and everything is putting pressure on the Bureau of Labor Statistics and everybody who's putting together all of these numbers that are supposed to be released this week to say, you know what? You like that job? It's a nice house you got there. It'd be a shame if something happened to it. You like that job? You, uh, you want to keep it? then you got to uh, play the game. The president is out there saying no recession. By the way, did you notice yesterday? You probably didn't. You shouldn't. But Joe Biden tweeted out through the official POTUS account a picture of him. It was hot as hell here in Washington, D.C. yesterday. Honestly, just hot as hell, but in an attempt to show proof of life that Joe Biden is still out there. <laughs> they tweeted out a picture of him with his dog on the veranda of the White House. He's outside on the phone, Joe Biden. He's got a blue suit on, a blue shirt, blue tie. It's all the way, it's at the residence. This is the residence of the White House. And he's sitting there on the phone. They put a, a landline phone out there on the veranda for this photo op. He's got his, <laughs> he's, at his feet is not his dog. His dog is on the couch because why not? It's it's the he's showing no respect for the furniture there because well he's a bad person. But his briefcase, he's got his brown satchel briefcase at the foot of his of his chair. His feet are crossed there. Socks neatly pulled all the way up, and he's got a three ring binder, and there he is on the phone wearing his aviator sunglasses. He looks confused still. It's an amazing ability to sit there in a staged photograph and look confused. But when you're always, you're probably sitting there going, what the hell are we doing? What are we doing? I can't imagine them letting this German shepherd actually out on the veranda, even when they're with him. Why? Because the dog could easily jump over the, the railing. And as we've determined, Joe is about as good at training his dogs as he is at raising decent human beings as his children. Anyway, it was 95 degrees yesterday in Washington, D.C., with a heat index well over 100. Yet for proof of life, they decided Joe had to wear a suit and sit out on the veranda in the heat, bring his bag like, oh, don't forget your briefcase, Mr. President, because you wouldn't want to not walk outside your residence without your briefcase that you never carry, that you've not been seen carrying once while you're present. Put it out there so because he can't have staff around him because he's got COVID. So he's got to put all the sort of things that he's totally working. He's totally, the only thing missing is an actual pen in his hand to write anything down. You know nobody's on the other end of that phone. 
It's a total weekend at Bernie's thing. The only thing missing is the drink and the cigarette hanging out of his mouth. But he tweets this out. He says, took some calls this morning with man's best coworker. Ah, uh, get it? Because he's out there with his dog. There's no... Somebody responded saying the dog is better potty trained than you are. <laughs> it's probably true. It's probably true. But this is what we're up to. This is where we are as a society. Oh, the president's got COVID. We've got to pretend that he's alive. And then he released a video whining about Donald Trump again. And uh, he released another picture of himself. <sighs> Earlier today, I was joined by industry and labor leaders to discuss the importance of passing the Chips for America to act, act to supercharge our efforts to make semiconductors Right here in America, I am ready to sign this strong bipartisan bill into law. And there he is, sitting there in the same blue suit. In a, sure got a lot of people around him taking pictures for a guy with COVID. You imagine you're the photographer. What are they telling the photographer? You're expendable, pal. I love the, I love your use, use of light. It's masterful. But if you were to die, we didn't care. If you were to get your family sick, we don't care. Go in there. Joe Biden is less popular than COVID. So go in and try and capture the essence of COVID and associate it with Joe Biden. And he's sitting there watching this TV and you're just like, what a what a sad sack. Can you imagine a hundred degree day, 79 year old guy. And they say, uh, put on a suit. You're working from home today. You're working alone making phone calls, landline phone calls, not video phone calls. Make sure you put a tie on and that you tighten that sucker right up to your neck. And being the president, being the president of the United States, you could say, hell no, I'm not going to do that. It's hot as hell out here. Go to hell. But instead he goes, yes, sir. Sir, yes, sir. I'll do whatever you tell me to do as long as I don't have to give up this job. <laughs> These people, I swear to God, you got to wonder who they're trying to uh, to fool, who they're trying to appeal to. They sit there, and yesterday also the president tweeted out the following: was a, a meme, it was a picture. At current prices, the average driver will spend $35 less per month for one person or $70 less per month for a family with two cars. See, it's like, they doubled it because they recognize that gas prices coming in and it said then they would if gas prices stayed at their peak. They're trying to take credit for gas prices coming down when in reality it's the fact that people can't afford $5 gas and so people are buying less gas and so the market forces are causing gas prices to come down because people can't afford it. People are working two there are more Americans than ever working two jobs to make ends meet thanks to Biden inflation. Or Biden inflation. And they're going, hey, you're saving $35 less per month. Right. You're spending $75 more per month than you were when Joe Biden came into office, but you're saving $35 less to when he was beating you about. It's like saying Joe Biden stopped beating you about the head and neck with a baseball bat, and now he's just hitting you in the thigh. Oh, okay. Less dam. I mean, you do some serious damage, but it's less damage than the head and neck, I guess. Thank you. Is that what you want? And even they recognize that $35 isn't anything to be all that excited about, especially when that's like a, a family of fours trip to a fast food restaurant now. So they said, but if you got two cars, it's $70, which 
to save people from, especially Democrats, from having to break out the calculator function, that's 35 plus 35, in case you were too stupid to figure that out. It's 105 if you have three cars and they just go on. You could save $10,000 a month if you happen to have a fleet of 4,800 cars. Yeah, look at the problem we've created. We, the problem we created is slightly less horrible than it was a month ago. All glory unto us. <laughs> the average price of gas is $4.30 a gallon. The average price of gas when Joe Biden took office was $2.39 per gallon. That's $2 more, $1.91 more than it was when Joe Biden took office. And he wants us to celebrate that it's no longer $5. After months and months and months of saying, look, it's beyond my control. I can't stop. There's nothing I can do about gas prices. Then you don't get credit when there's a minor dip in the cost of gas. But we'll find out. We'll find out how much Biden's economic plan is working out for the American people when we get the data to find out whether or not we're officially in a recession. That brings us back to Janet Yellen former head of the Fed, now the Treasury Secretary. Uh, She is not sick. She is not trans. This is her normal voice. She's telling Chuck Todd that, uh, look, she's not redefining. They're not redefining what a recession is. But, you know, we're not really in a recession. We're just in a period where growth is slowing, which, you know, kind of is important to definition if you're looking towards a definition of the word recession anyway listen to this for yourself with this many businesses seem to be preparing for a recession should all americans at home be preparing for what's uh for for a recession that many people think now is likely well um look the economy is slowing down it Last year, it grew very rapidly at about 5.5%, and that succeeded in putting people back to work who had lost their jobs during the pandemic. The labor market is now extremely strong. Um, Even just during the last three months, uh, net job gains averaged 375,000. This is not an economy that's in recession. But we're in a period of transition in which growth is slowing, and that's necessary and appropriate. (laughs) We're not in a recession. We're in a period of transition in which growth is slowing. Hmm. Is there maybe another word for that, especially when that growth uh, dips into the negative for, say, I don't know, some arbitrary length of time, maybe... Maybe two consecutive quarters. Is there a way that maybe we could, just in the interest of brevity, is there a way that we might be able to talk about that, Secretary Yellen, that uh, it would just be easier for people playing the home game? Oh, yes, it's called a recession. <laughs> you got to love it. Look, we're, we're just looking at the, it's a continued slowing of the growth. It's so slow, in fact, that, like that car is moving very, very slowly. How slowly would you say that car is moving? I'd say that car is moving so slowly it's moving backwards because it is, in fact, moving backwards. Huh. Good Lord. Yeah, um, they're terrified. They are terrified. 
the easiest way to avoid a recession is, look, they're going to happen. They're going to happen occasionally. Um, the best way to deal with it is to restrain government spending. Don't suck a bunch of money out of the economy through raising taxes. Pretty much don't do anything. Democrats are pushing desperately hard to do. Don't do those things and the recession won't be bad. The best thing Joe Biden has going for him right now is the fact that Republicans can effectively prevent him from implementing, well, Republicans and Joe Manchin, can effectively prevent him from implementing a lot of his garbage ideas, pushing them through the United States Senate. That's the only thing keeping us from a full-blown, horrific, massive recession. So you sit there and go, well, it's just negative growth. It could be any number of things. Who's to say? These are the people that are in charge of our country. You feeling safe? Yeah? You feeling good about the way things are going? Not a recession. It's just, too, you know, if most people, as a writer and as a speaker, but particularly as a writer, you want to find the most efficient way to say something. When you write an op-ed in most places, not a town hall, they let me write as long as I want, but uh, if I were to write somewhere, when I've written for newspapers and what have you, they say, well, it's 700, 750 words maximum. That's it. Well, then brevity is the soul of it because your first draft is like 900 words and you go, ah, crap. You give it to an editor who can cut out because everybody throws in a whole bunch of junk and you you cut it out. And you say it's that, that 975 rule that I learned when I took that writing course at the Heritage Foundation. Anything you can say in nine words, you can say in seven. And anything you can say in seven words, you can say in five. Brevity, get to your point. Make it as uh, as quickly as possible in as common language. And you're sitting there going, well, uh, we're not in a recession. We're in a period where, where growth is slowing and might slip into negative territory. Yeah, it's called a recession. It's called a recession. Just be honest. But these are people who can't be honest, won't be honest, don't have it in them to be honest because honesty is not their friend. Honesty is not their friend. That's a good indicator that you're not dealing with people who should be in power when honesty is not their friend. When honesty, when the, just the simple basic truths, not the spin, not the rationale for it, just the what is part of life is not their friend. Well, the economy, we're in a recession. The economy is shrinking. The spending is bad. We're spending too much money. Inflation is real. Instead, oh, no, gas price. You're saving 35 bucks over when it was at its peak. Sure, that's great. Over when it was at its peak. What about when it, you came to office? We don't think of it in those terms. That day is gone. Huh. So you want me to line up and high five you? For you saving me 35 bucks a month, even though you swore to me you couldn't do anything about the price of gas. But it comes down because people can't afford to drive and you want to parade for 35 bucks a month. All right. You can't go to the Red Lobster. But nothing against Red Lobster. I used to work at a Red Lobster, but you can't even go to a Red Lobster for thirty-five bucks. Yet suddenly you want to parade like you just—it uh, was VJ Day—and we're walking down Manhattan. I don't think so. That's not how it works, dude. Sorry. 
All right. In the uh, last few minutes that we have left, I've got some audio I want to play you in a second. Might be my, it's probably my favorite audio of the week, and the week is just getting started from Congressman Matt Gates. But uh, first, there is this story. It's uh, data from Redfin. If you've ever thought about buying a house, you ever, if you ever just want to know about house prices, look at Redfin. And you can find that stuff out and they compile. These places have tons of data about what's sold, how much it's sold for people or where they're moving from, where they're moving to, where they're searching from and what they're searching for and whether or not they're getting the hell out of Dodge and what have you. And they have compiled the top cities home buyers are seeking to leave. People putting their houses for sale and then, you know, they start looking for houses someplace else. All of these cities have something in common. You've got number one. Well, let's start at number 10. Minneapolis. Minneapolis. Minneapolis just recently told Dave Chappelle, the, the concert venue where punk rock and Prince started, said, no, we can't have you perform here because you upset the trance. People want to leave Minneapolis. Chicago, number nine. I'm surprised. That makes sense, but I'm surprised. I guess most people who could afford to leave Chicago have already left Chicago. Now it's just people who scratch together the money trying to get the hell out of there. Denver. You always hear good things about Denver, but ever since they legalized recreational marijuana, not so much. Detroit, which may lead you wondering how many people are left in Detroit to get the hell. Not many. Not many. Boston. Next. Boy, Boston's so progressive. They just elected a new mayor. She's so super progressive and historic. And people want to get the hell out of there. Seattle. Probably because the people don't want to be beaten up or burned to death by Antifa mobs over every perceived slight. Washington, D.C., wildly expensive, horrible liberal government is in at number four. New York City, wildly expensive crime, no longer a crime in New York City. So they're number three on the list. Los Angeles, California. Oh, the city of angels. Not working out so great for the people there. They want out. Why? Because you can wake up one morning and they can just set a homeless camp up in your front yard and you can't do anything about it. They've also been advising the residents of Los Angeles to not wear flashy, expensive jewelry in public as that could invite crime. Rather than fight crime, they're telling you to just you know put a bag over your head if you've got nice earrings on. Lovely, lovely city. And, of course, number one, Speaker of the House's stomping grounds, San Francisco. Congratulations, San Francisco. You are bound to top some list somewhere at some point. And, actually, you, you do this. I think you also have the highest per capita, per capita fecal matter on your city streets. So, you know, it's not exactly something the Chamber of Commerce is going to want to put on a sign at the airport. But still... When you win, you win. A trophy is a trophy. So congratulations. Now, what do all of these top 10 cities have in common? You've guessed it. They have all had Democratic leadership for generations, not just current, for generations. Detroit, for example, I believe the last Republican mayor left office in January of 1962. How has that worked out for the city of Detroit? Not super good. Not super good. San Francisco, who knows? Los Angeles has been a while. New York, it was Rudy Giuliani, and they said about making sure that everything that Rudy Giuliani accomplished was wiped out because that's what liberals do. 
all the good things that was associated with somebody they don't like, it must be destroyed. It's not like Joe Biden, the Trump administration, completely screwing up a working, a functioning and secure southern border. Why? Because Trump did it. Trump did it. We got to get rid of it. Yeah. Tell me again how liberalism works. If it's so great, why do people flee it? That's all I'm asking. That's all I'm asking. Lastly, today, I want to play this clip from Congressman Matt Gates. Congressman Matt Gates said at a speech recently down in Florida that the protesters at these pro-abortion rallies, these women who are wildly upset and taken to the streets about abortion, I believe he said they were fat and ugly. Now, that's a horrible thing to point out accurately about these women. But when asked, <laughs> when asked about it, yeah, I said it. When asked about it by a local reporter, Matt Gates came up with a way to give the middle finger without actually giving the middle finger. And you've got to admire that in a politician. Without blinking, Matt Gates said the following. Is it safe to say that based off of your comments, you're suggesting that these women at these abortion rallies are ugly and overweight? Yes. What do you say to people who think that those comments are offensive? Be offended. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be offended. Be offended. Be, look at the B-roll that you run on your own TV station and tell me how many of those people are hitting the gym. How many of those people are remotely attractive? Hmm? Zero, maybe one, maybe one every once in a while. Anyway, have yourself a great day. I appreciate the use of your ears. Thank you so much for sharing this. Tell your friends, be here. We'll do it all again tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.